Welcome to the True Worth Tech Talks podcast. Each episode, we talk to a senior level tech or data expert about people, projects, products, or platforms. My name's Sam Mickelson, founder of True Worth, a talent solution business that helps you build tech teams. We search, we engage, and we secure the very best tech talent for our clients, helping them to hire permanent staff, interim contractors, or deliver projects via the True Worth Collective, a unique, inclusive network of highly skilled and experienced SMEs who help organizations to manage and deliver tech and data projects. Thank you for finding us and tuning in. You can find out more at trueworthconsulting.com. Links to all our social feeds are in the episode description. Without further delay, let's get going and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Martin. How are you? You all right? Hi, I'm good, thanks. I'm good. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Really well. And thank you for, for coming on the podcast. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. Um, I know that we've spoken quite a few times over the last kind of, what, two, three years, maybe? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And um, I think I think you're one of those people who is really respected in the industry and what you do. Um, and it's great to have you on the podcast to talk a little bit about your career, some of your highlights. Uh, but particularly, we're going to be focusing on data storytelling. Um, and that's something that we hear so often. Uh, but I don't feel like we've tackled what that actually is. So I think... What's going to be great today is for you to expand on your experience and where you've seen data storytelling at its best. That's great. Yeah, fine. That's yeah. that's wonderful. Thanks for asking me on. No, no, it's an absolute pleasure. So, um, I mean, first of all, Martin, for those of you, for those of our listeners and people watching this on YouTube who don't know who you are, do you want to just give us a little bit of a, a potted career history? Um, of yourself if that's okay yeah yeah so uh, my name is martin squires um <clears throat> i started out uh, by degree i'm an economist rather than a statistician or a, a kind of stem graduate so i'm a, a little bit different in in data data terms and i i did start my career in um, logistics initially and then economics and right sort of wandered into customer analytics in the early 1990s so um, ended up uh, working for a building society on the, a project that was building their first customer and market database. That uh, was about 1993, so about 30 years ago. Wow. Um, okay. Spent most of the 90s working for a couple of building societies in customer analytics roles, uh, both of which are now part of Santander. Moved to M&S Bank to set up their customer intelligence and analysis team in 2000, uh, spent around eight years building that functionality and building that team for, for MS Bank and moved on to Boots, where I spent 10 years with Boots, initially as head of customer and market insight, so predominantly looking after the analytics of their advantage card loyalty data, uh, but also the pharmacy data and their digital um, analytics. Spent the last couple of years there as part of the Walgreens Boots Alliance team in an international role, looking at best practice and how we could work with teams in Chile, Norway, and Thailand. Uh, did a stint at Home Servers, their director of advanced analytics, 
a little bit of time working for myself. Um, three years at Pets at Home as director of advanced analytics, and I've recently done a stint as a um, as a consultant. I'm currently uh, freelancing in the marketing and customer analytics space. It's it's definitely thirty years, but it takes you that long to kind of do the list. But basically, I've been number cruncher in chief for a variety of marketing and customer directors in predominantly retail and financial services for but for about 30 years now that's such a great kind of journey by the sounds of it and thank you uh, a, a potted 30-year history um in a few minutes um is, is a no mean no mean feat so thank you for that martin and that's quite interesting because that's a a real you know logistics finance retail um you know, in some ways, very, very different, um, you know, industries, but obviously customer analytics at the heart of everything. And mm. I guess, and I guess your economics degree really, or your economics background, I should say, when you started kind of led you in good stead for that really, did it? Yeah. I mean, economics is an interesting subject for all things kind of data science and analytics. So it's, I think compared to some of the more pure maths, it's less about proving something to be absolutely factually correct. And it's more about trying to get an idea of something and trying to predict something. But it, it's also very much, you're never going to get perfect data in an economics data set. So you're using imperfect data and you're trying to make real business assumptions. So there is a real business focus. And I've always found that there is no perfect answer. You're trying to make the best estimates and best models you can to be something that that was, I think, really useful to come from that background. Uh, yeah. And is that where, where, you know, and excuse me for my ignorance here, but that is that all about um, econometric modeling and Pearson correlation coefficients? Yeah. So, um, I, I, yeah, I did econometrics as part of my, my degree. I also did sort of macroeconomics. So um, forecasting models for the UK economy, the sort of stuff that the sort of treasury, or ONS might get into, but um, yeah, certainly a big chunk was econometric modelling. Uh, that's probably yeah. the the nearest pure maths subject I did in there. But for a, a customer who wants to do an econometric model, they have to have a lot of data over a, a fairly long period of time, don't they, to make any sort of real assumptions, I, I would guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I think purists would definitely still say five years data, ideally. I, I think somewhere between two to three years data to get a, a good model. But again, uh, I think the uh, the statistician, George Box, famously said that all models are wrong, but some models are useful. I, I think, again, <laughs> sometimes people can get too hung up on wanting a perfect model, where sometimes... Um, if I could predict, uh, if I could predict a model that would tell me what six out of the ten Premier League games this weekend's correct score was going to be, I'd be a happy man because I'd still make a lot of money. So yeah. sometimes, yeah, yeah, you don't necessarily need one hundred percent accuracy. It's about knowing what level of accuracy is appropriate for the the task at hand. I was talking last week to uh, a data guy that I know. I love that terminology, data guys. I'm a data guy, <laughs> data lady. But a, a chap who I've known for a while, um, and he works a lot in marketing analytics. And he was talking to a client where he could basically allocate about 90% of the inquiries back to um, you know, particular advertisements, whether they be PPC or SEO or whatever it yeah. wherever it may be. And the client's like, no, 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 but how? why can't we get 100%? And he was like, look, you know, 90% is 
pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And, and the, the truth is you, you can nudge that 90% nearer and nearer 100 but disproportionately, it costs you a lot of money to get that extra accuracy compared to That's exactly what's what the, you actual, said, yeah. Yeah, the actual yeah. uplift in the marketing you're going to get from that extra accuracy just actually isn't worth the money you have to spend to get there. Um, from a, for a long time in retailers, again, taught me that sometimes a good model fast is better than a perfect model slow. And yeah. the classic piece would be things like Mother's Day or Valentine's Day you've got a finite point where you need to finish the model by because otherwise you can't get stuff on shelves in store. Yeah. It's a question of you've got two weeks. What's the best model you can build in two weeks? Not the best thing you can build in six months. You might be able to build a better model, but that's no good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's definitely a, a um, what is the best model you can build that meets your business requirements. I think I think we uh, we we could probably talk all day about um, you know econometric modelling maybe, but I'm not sure whether a lot of our listeners might turn off at that. Um, it's not exactly you know sexy sort of interesting stuff to a lot of people. Um, so so let's 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 go back and 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 I guess stay on topic. I I sort of digressed a little bit there. Mm. When it comes to data storytelling in your experience where do people kind of fall foul or where do people um, make mistakes i think often people get very scared of it in, in the first place and think it's deeply complicated and and think this is a, a skill set they're never going to be able to learn or understand and actually it's really quite a, a lot simpler i think when, when it comes right down to it i i kind of got thrown in at the deep end with storytelling when i was at the uh, the first building society i was at was the old national and provincial and we had a a chief exec who hated um basically probably wasn't powerpoint it was some predecessor uh, predecessor to, to powerpoint but he, he abolished use of it so literally every meeting including board meetings you had to go in with flip charts and you right. had to draw the stuff you were presenting on flip charts and talk to flip charts, which meant you you became a storyteller very quickly because that you could send out slides or spreadsheets afterwards, but you usually got 15 minutes and half a dozen flip charts to tell your message. And it's a skill set that's really kind of stuck with me. But I, I think people, as I say, they, they get scared of it. Um, there's a lot of, well, I'm an introvert. I don't like this. I, don't, I couldn't be thought I'm an extrovert. So that, that's ne never been something that worries. Standing up and making a film of myself has never worried me much. Um, but, yeah, I think there's a fear of doing it. And then the other thing that comes out of it is, if you look at, there's an awful lot of books, uh, published blogs, magazines, um, conferences, on data storing telling at the minute it's very much a, a, a kind of a, a buzzword and a, a, a kind of yeah. hype area yeah but lots and lots of it focus on the data aspect and not the storytelling um so it, effectively you can get lots of things um like and i'm picking on i'll pick on a book that's probably a very good book for what it does um there's a book I noticed on a bookshelf the other day, an introduction to data visualization in JavaScript. Now, if you want to make interactive graphics that you can see digitally, I'm sure it's a very good technical book, but it's then entitled Visual Storytelling with D3. It's like, well, if I'm going to learn data storytelling, I want to improve my storytelling. 
learning JavaScript probably isn't the thing that I'm kind of going to do. So we focus on the the technical aspects of what do you need to be data literate or fluent in data, which absolutely you do, but many analysts already are, but we don't then help them with the storytelling aspects of it, um, whether that's verbal storytelling, written, um, or, or using graphs and charts, but we tend to ignore the actual storytelling. It's a bit like sort of giving somebody a Roger's thesaurus and thinking that's going to make them the next Neil Gaiman or, or the next Terry Pratchett. It, it kind of is. It's going to mean they write stuff that's less likely to be rubbish, which is great and is technically accurate, but it's not going to kind of shift them on a level in terms of being able to tell stories with data. So then taking that, you're, what you're saying is that maybe it's a, a over some people overcomplicate it, maybe need to get back to basics. Where where would someone start then if they wanted to get better at data storytelling? So I, I think the the thing with to me is around um concentrating on the storytelling, but but pay attention, find some people in your organization or outside of it who you believe are good storytellers and listen to them, watch them, see what they're doing. Talk to them. Most people who are good storytellers will tell you stories. They'll, they'll, they'll as a bunch, they tend to be helpful. Um, so I, I think immersing yourself. Um, one of the, I, I think reading and listening to stories makes you a better storyteller. Um, oddly, Stan Lee of Marvel fame would once absolutely quoted, the more you read, the better you're going to become as a storyteller. And, and that's absolutely true. The more you expose yourself to people telling stories, in different ways, then the, the, the better you're going to be. Um, but also to acknowledge that the, the first time you actually try doing it, you're, you're not going to be necessarily wonderful, but you'll get better. And I think you need to start somewhere. So not being afraid to start would definitely be um, a key part of the advice I'd give, uh, I'd give to people. And you mentioned a couple of books there that would be um, a good start, maybe ones that kind of probably ones to avoid um what could you give us sort of two or three books that people yeah, might want to look at yeah i mean I, I i've read a lot of the books by people like alberto cairo has written some great books in in this area um i, I like stephen fuse uh fuse books um sorry the yorkshire accent i struggle to uh, <laughs> pronounce things occasionally uh things like show me the numbers which is a good great book on how to do better tables and charts uh jonathan schwabish's books um on better presentations and better data visualizations are, are very good again they, they tend to cover the mechanics of how to do better powerpoints and how to do better charts but that, that's a great starting point uh but i do also particularly like call uh nathlik if i've not pronounced that correct that's, there's every chance i've pronounced that wrong unfortunately uh but her, her books around storytelling with data uh, are genuinely excellent. I think they cover a lot of the ground from um, things like understanding the context, who your audience is, what message you're trying to get to, um, what sort of visuals do you want to include in the story, uh, how to bring focus to the right areas and how to then bring that together as a storyboard. Uh, so I think there's some great books out there, but then I think for me, there's an element of looking outside of data um, so the sorts of things I've read, which I found really useful, 
Um, there's a guy called Will Eisner, which for anybody who um, follows comic books or graphic novels um, will have heard of um, Eisner. He's, um, the comic book um, Oscars, if you like, are called the yeah. Eisners for a reason. Yeah, one of the yeah. kind of founding um, fathers of, of, of the industry. Uh, but he's written a book called Graphic Storytelling and Visual Narrative, which again is that if you think about comic books, they're basically most PowerPoint decks look like a comic book if you stretch yeah. them out end to end. Yeah. Um, and there's also a book by a guy called Scott McLeod called Understanding Comic Books. Both of them are excellent. Um, Eisner, in particular, Eisner described a story as a vehicle for conveying information in an easily absorbed manner. That's every PowerPoint deck I've tried to write has been absolutely trying to do that same thing. Um, how do you convey information in an easily absorbed manner? So you can really pick things from that. McLeod's definition is, is really good as well. He, uh, a bit more complicated, he called it juxtaposed pictorial and other images in a deliberate sequence intended to convey information and or to produce an aesthetic response in the viewer. So he, he kind of give you the, the extra bit of sometimes it's about actually getting an emotional response rather than just conveying information. But again, very much the same thing that we're, we're trying to tell stories in a way that absolutely somebody who writes comic books would, would understand. Um, you can learn a lot from things like that. Um, the other one that gets me looked at slightly sideways from people is, um, is um, I think there's a great lesson from Parker and Stone, the guys who write South Park. South Park, I, that, yeah. That absolutely yeah. gets you. How on earth do you get data storytelling from South Park? <laughs> and um, the, the reason is they've got, uh, there's a video that they've done, and it's at one of the New York universities, and it's on YouTube. And they talk about how they design and create the South Park episodes. And, and I'll have to exclude the, uh, I'll exclude most of the swearing anyway. Um, but they talk about the most boring thing people can do is South Park, if you think about it, it's almost a set of still images. It's almost is a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah. Um, it, right down to the basics of it. But they kind of say that from every scene to scene, a bad story and a dull story will go, this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens the end after people have fallen asleep and it's just dull but so many business presentations look like that um they talk about the join should always be the words therefore or but so you're writing something that goes this happens therefore this happens therefore this happens but then this happens therefore this but then which takes you through the story a lot better and i've tried to write powerpoint decks with that as the link more than and mm -hmm. and the yeah. result is just wow that's so much better yeah so again i think you can take these sorts of lessons um lots of analysts watch lots of stories they're yeah. all around us we whatever you know, i mean my particular advice you'd probably tell is sci-fi and fantasy but yeah whatever stuff you watch you can take lessons from how do people tell the stories that they tell and deliver them and i think taking those lessons from master storytellers rather than how do i do a better spreadsheet or a better chart can often make a real difference yeah, I, th I think you're spot on there. And um, there's so much we can take from, I guess, Marvel, DC, comic books, you know, as you say, cartoons that have got 30 minutes to give a, a beginning and an end and an in-between yeah. and make it make sense. And Absolutely. I think, I, th I think you're absolutely spot on. So it's it's I guess it's not so much about 
getting too bogged down with the data and what the data tells us. We've got to make it into a story. We've got to make it almost like that. You know, when I think people talk about the, you know, Disney stories have have that kind of start where you introduce the characters, hmm. everything's great, then everything goes wrong and it's all bad. And then we all kind of get emot- emotionally kind of bored. And then it's that that hero journey, isn't it? Absolutely, almost. yeah. Again, um, Campbell's book, the the hero with a thousand faces, absolutely is a a book I'd read. And things like Stephen King on storytelling, again, a great book to try. Oh, to Stephen King is is um, just unbelievable, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if people can run to a masterclass subscription, you've got things like uh, Neil Gaiman um, is on uh, masterclass. I was going to ask you about Neil yeah, Gaiman because you mentioned that storytelling. Yeah, I, I love Neil Gaiman stuff. Uh, but there's a masterclass that he's done. Levar Burton, again, has done Teaching the Power of Storytelling on Masterclass. And um, Alan Moore, um, the guy who wrote the uh, the Watchmen, V for Vendetta, yeah. again, were the giants of comic books. Again, he's written one for, he does one for BBC Maestro. Um, so again, the, the, sadly, none of them are particularly cheap, but um, but they're all, I think, well worth the, uh, well worth the money um, in terms of stuff that's more readily accessible. There's things like Pixar in a Box on YouTube, yeah. which yeah. gets a great set of videos that uh, just talks about um, Pixar and storytelling. And uh, it picks up, it's about 10 years old now, but um, Emma Coates, who used to be at Pixar, wrote 22 Rules to Perfect Storytelling. Again, that that's online in a few places. Not all of them are data relevant, but uh, one or two of them really are. So one of her rules is you've got to keep in mind what's interesting to you as an audience, not what's fun to do as a writer. And the amount of times I've had to coach analysts to do that is don't write something that analysts are really interested in. Dump the technical stuff in an appendix, even if it's got to be in there at all. But um, I can remember coaching analysts and presenting data once. And I, I took, I often used still do take analysts with me so that they can see me present st- stuff and the justification is they can technically support me if there's any deep in-depth questions. Mm. In reality, what I want to do is show them how I present. So I can remember one instance where we had about a 25-page deck. We got to the stage where about 10 slides in, a couple of the key stakeholders went, great, yes, okay, well, understand that. We Yes, we need to approve this, let's move on. Yeah. And at which point I stood up, folded the laptop up and was out the door. And the analyst who worked for me was going, we had another 15 slides. And I, I had a coffee with them just to explain of the only thing I could have done showing the extra 15 line slides is screw up. Yeah. I'd got the decision. <laughs> they'd agreed what we needed to do. Yeah. Get out of there. Don't show them yeah. the other stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, um, yeah, again, it's the what's the purpose of the story. And I guess what's, um, you know, really important for the, I guess, the junior analyst, because I think that a lot, this is maybe going to appeal to a lot of people that are maybe, two years into their data science career or they're Mm. just about thinking about whether they go and do data science maybe um winning hearts and minds in a business is a big thing isn't it yeah and i i I think it's absolutely what's going to appeal to the stakeholders um so one of the other things I've, i've often coached people is if you're asked to explain the technique, often data scientists really don't want to cut corners explaining the technique or say mm. anything that really isn't quite true. Mm. I've described random forest to somebody as because I knew they understood a decision tree and a, a chaired model. I just said it's just gluing lots of chaired models together till you get the best ones out of it. Now, yeah. 
technically people will rip me to bits for that because that's not quite what it is. But the guy who was on the end of that said, oh, great, so the computers can now kind of run a couple of hundred at once and we can kind of pick the best bits. Yeah, that's pretty much what it's doing. You're like, okay, got it. Right, on we go. He was happy. I was into the rest of the presentation. Everyone's a winner. Um, again, it's like, you can't deliberately lie to people, but you can occasionally just do the, this is 80% accurate and that's what we need. Let's yeah. not get bogged down in it. Let's get to the bit we need to talk about, which is what's the business application of what we're doing. And and again, that is really important, isn't it? Not only winning the hearts and minds, but for the analysts to understand yeah. what's the business outcome? What is this person trying to do at the moment? How can I actually save them time and yeah, effort yeah. where they don't need to be doing that? And it, it's knowing the audience. So I mean, in that example, the one person in the room that I knew that wouldn't go down well with, with the organisation was the finance director. I'd already seen him, took him through the detail, took him through what the model actually was, He'd had all the background he needed, and I'd kind of just teed him up with, "Look, you're, we're doing this because you're the only one who's going to." And he did the, "I'm the only one who'll understand it." And I went, "Well, yeah, but I'm going to cut corners on the rest, and I probably will actually just take a couple of liberties with how it actually works, just to get into the meat of it." And just went, "Yeah, fine," which meant the one person who might have actually had a problem with any of it. Again, it's that. Yeah, um, there's a thing with um, some of the storytelling courses called disintermediation. Uh, which basically, if you think about it, it's the different ways you'll tell the same story. So you mm. think about something like Lord of the Rings, book, film, graphic novel. Somebody's actually even done an opera, I believe. It's like there's just lots of different ways of essentially telling the same story. And different audiences, I, I, I can have arguments with my, with my kids and friends of mine as to whether the books of Lord of the Rings are better than the films. Yeah. They're both really good, but um, some people find it easier to absorb in, in a film than a book. You've just got to work that out with your audiences and, and give people what they need. Yeah. Um, going back to your career then, um, mm. and maybe just looking at Boots as an example, um, you mentioned the Advantage card. Um, yeah. And it and it feels like Boots were probably you know first to market, even before Tesco maybe. Um, with their club card um, it feels like though Boots Advantage card is still the same as it was it's a simple model it no one's ever challenged it um, yet Tesco feels like it's changed all the time what what do you think the differences are and and you know um, what was your role in in kind of Boots to either improve that or to make changes to it what what were you talk to me about what you did with the Advantage card yeah, so a lot of um, Advantage cards have been around a long time. So um, I, I think similar to all of the loyalty cards, they've progressively become more digital over time. Um, so certainly um, when I joined Boots, we didn't have an app because um, no one did, really. No, yeah. uh, we, we had kiosks in stores. That you can put your card in this yeah. kiosk that would give you offers. Um, over time, we removed the kiosks. It was old technology. We were actually having to cannibalize some of them for parts when they broke down. Uh, but the kiosks were removed because we got people to move onto the app. You could take your phone in store and download the offers. You didn't need the kiosk. So a lot of it was just trying to make things better. But we did things like implementing next best offer um, at till point. Um, so that, that it was changes that would just make the customer experience a bit better, make the targeting better. Um, 
often more granular segmentation. But the, the, the core offer with Boots is extremely popular. I think there, there is an element of, with loyalty schemes, I think it's getting to critical mass and getting that first couple of years under your belt with the scheme. Once it's established with the customer base, it's actually yes. very difficult to move um, because a lot of customers will say that if the loyalty scheme wasn't there, they would move and shop somewhere else. So it yeah. does become a, a hell of a beast in its own in its own right. And um, what what was the um, what was the biggest challenge in that role then for you? Um, the, the biggest challenge in the role was probably just the pure breadth of it with stakeholders because you would run from uh, you, you had very much high end beauty within boots. You had toiletries and lifestyle products. Um, so you were dealing with traders who were very much at the uh, low margin, high turnover products in toiletries. You then had Christmas yeah. gifting. You had healthcare and you had the pharmacy business and, and opticians. So you had a raft of very different businesses and mm. slightly cliched if you took it, but it, if you can imagine that you would spend one meeting in the morning talking to um, product owners within the beauty area and then you're going to spend the afternoon talking to pharmacists, you have quite different conversations. Yeah, I bet you uh, do. There's, there's, a, there's a variety of cliches in there, but <laughs> some of them are true. I, but yeah, you, you had to be able to switch um to different audiences and it's a big complex business so being able to be very adaptive and to often think on your feet again retail moves very very quickly uh, yeah. you can think you've got a plan and then a week's trading figures look different and your plan suddenly kind of tilts so yeah. um yeah big complex and having to adapt at speed was was definitely the regular challenges within retail it, it feels like to me, and again, correct me if it here if I'm wrong, but it feels like to me that data scientists or data analysts are basically economists, but they're using technology to tell their story or they're using the technology to, to find an outcome and then explaining how it happened, why it happened, and then trying to make predictions of what could happen if you continue doing yeah, this or yeah. this is that right um yeah i think so i think the again we're back to stories and and fiction and again i am a big sci-fi and fantasy fan so it's no no surprise i kind of end up quoting game of thrones but <laughs> I, I, I think most most good sort of heads of data science or chief analytics officers effectively become the hand of the king you, yes. you, you are never going to yes. sit the iron throne but you will yeah. be Tyrion. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're basically the person who can take in a raft of information and actually then just help people make the right decisions yeah. and make them at the right time. And it's that ability to be the trusted advisor that can take this morass of information. And um, again, whether whatever techniques we use, to some extent, it might as well be you can look at the algorithms, you can look at machine learning, you can look at AI. To some extent, it might as well be, be, be it's the magic source somewhere, but to an extent, we, we interpret and we, we perform the magic with the data, and then we kind of go back to people, and yeah. we, we help them. And that, yeah. that's we, we very rarely get to, I think, make the absolute decision ourselves. Sometimes I think decision-making does default into the analytics area, but generally we, we are the advisors that um, power that decision-making process. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I think um, you touched on machine learning and AI, and some people would argue that machine learning is just AI. And I think to to uh, a lot of people that are not familiar with with actually what machine learning is and um, what data science is, they're now a lot more uh i guess exposed to what ai is oh right ai yeah. is, is so ai is really behind the scenes it's machine learning and there's a lot of technology that goes into that um in the same way that probably 20 years ago nobody knew what an application was mm. but we now know what a mobile app is and what it does because we're all exposed to it we're, it's it's on everyone's device do you think that ai is is going in the same way then because i know we and we could do another podcast just on ai mm. but do you want to just give us your thoughts and opinions on artificial intelligence where we are now and yeah yeah where we're going to see it more applicable in the future i i think ai will it's really exciting i think there's some really great stuff happening um it's moved on massively over the last 20 years from when people were first starting to talk to me about neural network technology and whether we could replace regression models and change models with neural nets. So there's been a massive change. I think the, the interesting thing is how eventually it will become ubiquitous, that we won't actually know. It's like at the moment, if you start talking about apps, a lot of people don't talk about apps. They just press buttons on yeah. the... It, yeah. it, oh, it's an app? Yeah, um, it, it will become embedded, I think, in how business operates, and that's that's something we'll have to adapt to. I, I think the other thing organisations need to, I think, be wary of on the journey is, and I think we saw this a bit with big data and with things like Hadoop and MapReduce. There was the latest kind of, oh wow, we've got to be doing this, and lots of people wrote data or IT strategies based on oh, there's this new technology, so we can do X, we can do Y, we can do Z. And people didn't stop to ask the question of just because you can doesn't mean you should. And yeah. still to me, the the real key is to take your business strategy and then the what your chief data officer or chief analytics officer and what people like myself need to do is say, right, if you want to do this, this is how your data and how your analytics can help you deliver that better. We can deliver that either six months quicker or 25% more efficiently, or we can drive revenue from it even more than you're doing at the minute if we use data in this way. And to some extent, the stakeholders don't then need to care whether it is AI, machine learning, or, or sometimes actually if the answer is half a dozen lines of SQL code, just write the SQL. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it's actually how do you get to that value statement? And too often, I think the tail can wag the dog. I think that was... Um... That was definitely the case probably 20 not 20 years ago 10 years ago i should say with mobile apps i was working yeah. in i was working in data and advertising at the time and i remember sat in a conference in 2012 and people saying well this year is the year of mobile uh this is when it's really going to kick off and they've been threatening it for two three years and it did it did but a lot of people then went out and developed apps just for the sake of it and like you said yeah. a lot of people went oh what what you know we need this now without really re understanding what do we need to, it to do yeah. and why um I, I, the classic example with that would be again where does the app where, where does mobile fit in a lot of customer journeys for, mm. for the, the, again there's philistines like me i'll research on a train i'll use my mobile 
I'll wait till I've got home and then go on the desktop or go on the laptop to actually make the purchase decision. So you're back to that econometrics point of kind of understanding you don't get the sale without mobile, but it, I'm always going to complete another channel just because I'm kind of knocking on a bit and the fingers are little fat fingers and a mobile button on the train. It's just not happening. Um, so, But I, it's an ideal opportunity for me to research. It's about knowing the roles of the channels. It comes back to understanding the customer. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that, that comes back to... I guess what I was going to finish off with is um, whether it's finance, logistics or retail, it's all about the customer. Yeah. And, and I think to your point earlier, um, analysts who are just getting into data, they need to understand who their customer is, not just the customer data, but who they're presenting to, yeah. to make sure the data storytelling it's, works. It's, it, it is. It, understand your audience. And if you don't, if the people you don't see or interact with a lot, find out who they trust in the organization and go have a chat with them before you present. There's always somebody who will help you. And the other thing in terms of customer, the, the advice, well, the first piece of advice I still give to any analyst in retail, if you've got a business question, if somebody comes to you and asks, how did this promotion work um, that we're going to do? We need to understand the promotion. Before you touch a line of code, go out into a store, Watch the fixture, watch how people are shopping it, talk to a store manager, talk to your store colleagues, then have a look on the computer. But get that first. And similarly with call centres, spend some time sat on the phone listening to customers. It, it's massively important, both in terms of understanding, but also it helps you when you see a data item where you think, that can't be right, because you'll know how that data was captured. You go, oh, yeah, yeah that's good. Um, so I think it's just really important to not just see the world through that computer screen, but to, to get out there and understand what real people do when confronted with data. Yeah, I think that's a, gr a great point. When when you're talking to um, clients nowadays, so you've spent a bit of time in consultancy in the last couple of years working for Merkle, and I imagine that Merkle would kind of push you out in front of one of their clients, say, come on, Martin, you need to come and kind of sell what we do or um you know there's an initial meeting here where you've got to meet some internal senior stakeholders what's the what's the sort of um if you were to give some advice to somebody that's in that position themselves what sort of questions should they be asking those senior stakeholders do you think when it comes to trying to solve something for that client from a data point of view so i, I think that's the key it's to understand what you're trying to solve the um I'm smiling because I'm thinking of um, some some advice that my um, my great grandmother gave me once, which was "God give you two ears and one mouth. Try using them in that proportion." Um, which, um, and I think that's in the in the first setup with a lot of it is listen, yeah. and th then because it, it's understanding what the problem is. Often people won't understand what their problem really is, so digging, being able to dig and refine that problem. Once you've refined the problem, you've got to be on the same page. Because often, when, whether it was Merkel, I want to work for myself or, or inside companies, often the problem is you're in a room with 10 people. They all think they're working on the same problem. They're working on at least half a dozen different nuanced problems. <laughs> Getting them to agree this is the problem, that, that's a good starting point. Once you've got that, you can then start to work on Right, if that's your problem, what data have you got available? And right, okay, I'll start to work out then how this can potentially help you solve that. But yeah, understand the get agreement with what the problem is. That that's that's always step one. 
And when it comes to, because um, a lot of candidates who I work with, um, you know, are junior level data analysts potentially, and they always ask me, um, you know, what what should I be asking in an interview situation? Um, and I always struggle with that question, really. But you know, have you have you when you've interviewed candidates yourself? Are there questions that you think, uh, you know, that candidates should always ask every time? Is there any any advice that you would give to somebody that's looking to, you know, um, develop their career in data? What what should they be asking at interview? Um, I, I think at the junior end, there's always the question of how is this role going to help me develop my skills? So um, one thing I've always promised anybody working for me is they'll have a better CV at the end of the year than the start. So I think from the candidate viewpoint asking that question of how does this role help me be develop mm. that's just really important because yeah if people can't answer that that's probably not the right role at the junior end um a question i've always liked and, and one i will often ask myself is the in 12 months time how will you know you hired the right person um because i think that it's, gives it's, you, it's that, flipping it on its head a little yeah, bit there. yeah yeah okay. and it really that will give you a really good idea of who they actually want and why. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that's that that's a very good one to ask. Um, you can never ask too many questions about current business performance. I think you can't go too badly wrong with if you read up and about, and even if you know the answer to the question because you've read up on it, asking something which shows that you've actually read a bit about the organisation, never a bad thing. Uh, but in general, I, I would always ask the, um, say, the question about what skills and the question about how do you know you've got the right person. The, the other thing in the interview process I like candidates doing is, and you can tell the ones that have done it, you can tell the ones that have stalked your entire team on LinkedIn. Okay. And they've, because they've read their LinkedIn profiles, I actually like the ones that have gone out and tried to connect to one or two of them and had a chat with them. Yeah, I just think good. that is excellent initiative and it, it gives them an idea of what the team actually does, but it also shows some gumption. Um, th the last one again is, uh, again, if you're being interviewed by a retailer, um, go out and spend a day in a, a, a walk around a couple of shops, yeah. talk to the store colleagues, offer to take the store manager for a coffee or buy him lunch Um I'm not talking about kind of swanky five-star. I'm talking do you want a <laughs> retail managers will talk to you quite a lot for a Costa and a sandwich. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's the, yeah but give them a free burger. And they'll, they'll, I, that sort of knowledge, I think, comes through when you're interviewing the candidates that have done that. That, that still is a, a massive thing to me. Um, that's, that's, that's great advice. I like that. Um, and I guess um, I asked this of some of our guests on the podcasts. Um, I, and and please, um, I'm I'm not I'm not trying to be rude because I'm I'm an old man my, myself. <laughs> um, we're not getting any younger. But um, what advice would you give to your 25 year old self, knowing what you know now? Um, the I think a little bit of it the 20 odd year old self did get is that lifetime learning is is key um i think a job that will improve your skill set 25 percent versus one that will give you a five percent pay rise 
take the 25% skill set improvement every time. Um, I, I was never a career planner. I was always, is this kind of going in an interesting direction? Does it move me forward? Mm. And I think that's that's worked well for me over the years. The, the other thing, I remember talking to a friend of mine who worked in far more the heavy duty end of pharmacy and drug testing. And he said, the one thing he envied me is even if I got something badly wrong, no one died. Um, <laughs> and, we, that, and that's a bit brutal. Um, we, we'd both had quite a lot of wine by that stage. But I, I still, I think that advice of, actually don't worry about the small stuff everything will be all right that that's just keep learning keep getting new skills and keep moving forward and trying new things and everything kind of should work out yeah that's brilliant martin thank you really appreciate that um is there anything else that we've 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 not covered that you would like to um you know mention or highlight in terms of Ooh. you know advice to people that are kind of maybe they are being told by their boss right you're gonna deal with because you mentioned it almost feels like you fell into data a little bit and I, yeah, I, yeah. I and, and I feel I hear that from so many people that they didn't ever sort of go out and say I'm going to be a data scientist or I'm going to lead a data team I feel like that's the case now because data is is more of a thing than it is so now we kind of yeah. pigeonhole people into it but I um I'm, I'm not sure what my question there is but um I guess I guess where do people kind of start if they're if they're just curious about it I I, I think there's now we're sort of coming through the whole COVID thing. There's lots of meetups out there. There's lots of groups online. Just join them, throw yourselves in. Um, I, and this probably actually answers one of your previous questions. The the 25-year-old the me would have been a little reticent, of, hard to imagine now, I know. But at <laughs> conferences, going up and talking to the speaker over the coffee yeah. break or talking to people, um, I would have been just a little cautious of kind of making myself don't want to ask a daft question. Yeah. Ask daft questions, go talk yeah. to people, but go along. Um, I went along to a great data visualization in a workshop in Nottingham the other week uh, that Stephanie, uh, I can't, I've got to pick people whose names I can pronounce, <laughs> uh, but um, a great um, data visualization workshop in Nottingham, the city arts um, area I put on the other week. And, um, I, I think there's so many great events out. Um, a friend of mine runs Our Ladies Manchester, for, for okay. example. Yeah. There's lots of groups. Get yourself along to them, talk to people, connect with people online. Um, as an industry, I think the majority of people are very friendly, very talkative, very sharing. But just have a chat with people about what they do. There's so many different flavours of data scientists from either heavy data engineering, heavy duty sort of back office modeling through to the people who absolutely it's more customer analytics it's more writing sql it's more oh, what's the immediate business problem this week there's lots of different roles within there i just talk to people and find out which is the one that interests you most but yeah the, te the technical skills are all fairly similar it, it's uh, mm -hmm. it's all kind of sequel some probability and statistics a, a bit of calculus you can kind of get the technical skill set to a solid ground but then kind of you know talk to people about what they do and what's their yeah. day in the life look like yeah 
Thank you. That's great. And um, I guess one last question, Martin. Any uh, advice to recruiters like myself um, when we're working on a particular, you know, job description for someone like yourself? What's what's your what's your thing that you look at in a CV first when you're hiring for somebody in your data team? Um, so <clears throat> I'll tell you the ones I hate. Now that that's easier. I hate the ones where the first page is all just a list of software tools and algorithms. I've switched off long before. I want to know what people have done with this stuff. I uh, the best. I used to ask the question of "Tell me why your current employer employs you." Um, was an interview question I always used to ask. I hired one guy who worked for an insurer when I was at MNS, and he said, "Oh, I build models that um, help reduce retention and have made um, insurer X about twelve point five million pounds in the last year." I ended up talking Brilliant. to him about foot. I talked to him about football for the next twenty minutes. I was already hiring <laughs> him. Um, so I, I, I think it's that. But it, if I look, I've often talked about looking for five C's rather than technical. You can te train technical, but other aspects you can't. Communication, creativity, curiosity, collaboration, common sense. Th that's the things I'm going to try to look for in the interview. If I can find those, and somebody's got an analytical aptitude and they've got those, I can train the rest. If they haven't got things like a natural curiosity about data, if they haven't got that sort of, uh, people talk about creativity and do data can't be creative. A slightly dull example, but um, if you've ever worked in credit cards, um, balance to, to credit limit ratio is one of the key variables, basically how close to your credit limit you run your balance. Mm. That's not on any database naturally. Somebody, and I think it was somebody at Fair Eyes that, that did it, some analyst sat there looking at a screen and goes, what if I do that? And that's the sort of creativity you're kind of looking for, somebody who can go create variables in data. And it's, it's, a, it's a very, I find it a very creative process, but I'm maybe a little strange. But I'm looking for that rather than, technical to me is, is almost like the minimum qualifying standard. You need to be technically at a certain level to do the job. Great, but once you're past that, it's these other things that will make the difference between a good analyst and a great one. I think yeah, I think I think that's spot on, and what a, a great time and a great place to finish. So we we've talked about Stanley, we've talked about Pixar, South Park, econometric modelling, and being really curious and being a good communicator. Um, you know, I didn't expect us to cover those things really, to be <laughs> honest. And the Boots Advantage card, um, yeah. and and taking a read store owner out for a coffee to pick his pick his or her brains on how that yeah. store works yeah that's i say you can martin you can get a mountain, mountain a, it, of information absolutely absolutely it's been it's been a great um 40 minutes to an hour spending with you here today i really really appreciate your time thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast um and listen, obviously, we're we're trying to find you a role at the moment. Um, are you still available actively and looking? Because by the time this podcast comes out, you might still be on the market. You might um, be looking again freelance. Well, that's it. So at, at the moment, certainly, uh, by the time the podcast comes out, well, hopefully not, but you never know. And then again, things always come round yeah. again that I, I'm freelancing. I do contract work. So again, you, you, you never know. Um, I, I'm certainly in the stage where if anybody sees this and thinks, oh, I'd like to have a chat with him. I'll have a chat with anybody, if only because I actually like talking to people. So um, by all means, if I've said anything that's interesting and anybody wants to talk to me, then uh, that's great.
what the, what right now then just very quickly what are the sort of three main scenarios where you are normally dropped into an organization to help them so re- realistically it's um it's mostly the transformation area so it would be people wanting to do more with their data and wanting to actually transform how data will help their organization so it's often how do you set up a team how do you best use a data asset how do you implement new technology or how do you grow the teams is it's either going to be transformation in terms of tech stack or transformation in terms of growing and building a team so i've I guess a lot of my skill set has been about putting in data warehouses, tools, analytics, and building technical capability. But also, I built a couple of teams that have won um, awards for within or Boots and Pets at Home. My teams won internal team of the year awards. So it, it's that sort of capability build. Um, and some people just want to talk to me about we don't know if we need a CDO or a chief analytics officer. We'd like to talk to somebody who can give us a, an unbiased view of whether do we, don't we? How do we set up a team? It, it's that transformation stage where I think my kind of USP sits. Great stuff. That's brilliant, Martin. Listen, thank you so much again for your time. Really appreciate it. And um, um, we'd love to have you back on the show in the future. Um, but but thank you for, for coming on. No problem at all. I'd be delighted to come back whenever you want me. Thanks very much. It's been fun. Cheers, Martin. Thanks very much again. Cheers. Thank you. Take care. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the True Worth Tech Talks podcast. It means a lot. And if you got this far, we want to reward your patience. Send me an email to sam at trueworthconsulting.com and just put the word Eric in the subject field and your home address in the mail. I won't keep that data or store it anywhere, I promise you. But I will send you a special gift as a thank you. And any feedback will be greatly appreciated. Tell us what you think, what you want us to be talking about in the future episodes, and we'll try to make that happen. Now, if this gets really popular, we might have to change this message. But for now, let's see how many people actually listen all the way to the end of a podcast. And if that's you, thank you. And I look forward to speaking to you on the next one. Take care. Bye for now.